It's New Comic Day, Wednesday, April 15th, 2015, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where the only crossover event involves an actual cross. I'm Father Jonathan Michikin, Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm the Rector of Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the curate at Christ Church in Cooperstown, New York. On today's show, we discuss the new show Daredevil. All 13 episodes of the first season went live on Netflix April 10th. We'll discuss whether this dark drama captures the character who has been keeping Hell's Kitchen safe on the pages of comic books since 1964. We'll also talk about Daredevil's Catholicism, how it plays out in the series, and what shows like this one tend to get right and wrong about things like confession, crucifixes, and other aspects of the historic Christian faith. And as always, we'll have recommendations, this or that, and a whole lot more. So let's get into some recommendations. And uh, I'm going to just flip the paradigm completely upside down uh, because I am going to go first with recommendations this time. All right? How crazy is that? Hold on. Crazy. So my recommendation this time out is Gotham Academy. Uh, Gotham Academy is a relatively young series. It's DC Comics, uh, and it's, it's... just only done six issues thus far, although I believe the first trade has already come out. Uh, It is in the Batman universe, although not really about uh, any of the Batman characters uh, that most people know, at least not so far. It is written by Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher, with art by Carl Kershaw. Brendan Fletcher is also co-writing the current Batgirl run. Becky Cloonan is actually much better known as an artist, and if I'm not mistaken, this I think is, is her first time writing a series. She's done a lot of, uh, of art over the years, manga, comics, and things like that. Actually, um, she is the first woman to ever draw the main Batman book. She did that ah. for a little while back in 2012. Uh, the best way that I can describe this book is... It's Hogwarts if Hogwarts was in Gotham City. And it, I say that <laughs> <Okay>. not, <laughs> not because the characters don't have magic powers or anything like that, but just something about the setting and the ambiance. It's this old, supposed to be this old private boarding school with all these kids, and um, it kind of has this creepy kind of, Uh, lighting to it and and this kind of almost otherworldly magical feel to it a lot of which is accomplished by the art the art is is really uh, really stellar it almost looks animated um, without looking cartoony which is which is hard to describe really but it looks like you you read through it and you almost you almost imagine that the images are going to start moving uh, on the page it centers around a young girl named Olive who has just started at Gotham Academy and who has a lot of secrets and a lot of things that she's trying to figure out. We learn relatively quickly in the run that her mother is at Arkham Asylum, 
uh, although we don't know exactly why. Um, she seems to hate Batman, who doesn't really show up very much in the book, but, but when, when he's discussed, she has some real issues with him, um, and that's something that has to be uh, worked out. There are also some, some mysteries going on inside the school, uh, some things that are happening that are very strange. And so she and some friends um, have to kind of discover what's going on behind the walls, uh, so to speak. It's a really great book in a lot of ways. It, as I said, it's, it's kind of spooky, but it's not bloody. Um, it's really a fun book, and it's, it's an all-ages book. It's a book I would be comfortable giving to a, you know, a 12-year-old or, or uh, you know, somebody like that. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun, and I'm just hoping that people take a look at it because right now it's not selling terribly well. Uh, in March it was up around 20,000 copies. Prior to that it had been down a bit. I know when they come back after the Convergence event, uh, Damian Wayne is going to be a student there. So I think they're trying to, to use that to, to bump it up a little bit. I'm actually a little bit worried about that, to be honest. But, um, but I'm really hopeful for the book, and I hope people check it out. Father Kyle, what do you have? My recommendation is also in the Batman family of comic books. Uh, my recommendation this week is Batman Eternal. Um, Batman Eternal is a weekly Batman series that just wrapped up with issue number 52 about two weeks ago. So it's been running from roughly this time last year all the way through. Um, it's written by Scott Snyder, who is the author of the regular Batman title and has been the author of the regular Batman title since the new 52. Uh, prior to that, he was the author of Detective Comics for uh, part of the run in which Dick Grayson was had taken over as Batman. Um, it is also uh, co-written or co-plotted, perhaps I should say, with, by uh, James Tinian IV, who had a little bit of a stint working on Detective Comics. And they have several consulting writers along the way, Ray Fox, Kyle Higgins, and Tim Seeley. There have been quite a number of artists on the Batman Eternal series Given that it's a weekly comic, it's too much work for one artist to simply do himself. And so they've had a rotating cast of artists throughout the past year. Uh, the story itself is um, one part of the massive story that Scott Snyder has been telling throughout Batman, the Batman title, uh, since the launch of the New 52. Thus far, Scott Snyder has really told the beginning and the end and some of the middle of Batman's career. He did a series called Zero Year, uh, in which he told about Batman's origin, and then he did a series at the beginning. Everything Scott Snyder does seems to be out of order, but he did a, a series called The Court of the Owls at the very beginning of the New 52, which sort of follows after the events of Zero Year. Well, Batman Eternal follows after the events um, in the Court of Owls series. And so there are some connections to that particular series and the storyline that was running through there in which there is this secret organization that actually lurks beneath the surface of Gotham City known as the Court of Owls, these uh, wealthy individuals who have started a secret society in which they all wear these white owl masks and they're secretly manipulating and controlling everything that happens in the city. 
Um, and so Batman discovers them and realizes that he needs to do something to deal with the, the bad influence that they have. The, uh, the Batman Eternal storyline picks up on that thread, but um, the real heart of the Batman Eternal storyline is uh, what happens when a B-grade Batman villain manages to put all the clues together to discover who Batman is and then begin systematically tearing apart Batman's life. And um, we're kept in suspense for 51 issues before we discover who that B-grade villain is, uh, who's controlling it, and Batman is trying to figure that out. And along the way, various aspects of his life come crumbling down. But an extremely intriguing read, just a, a superbly written story, and um, some moments of great artistry throughout the book, too. Not all the artists were my favorites, but uh, there were a number in there who did a fantastic job. So I highly recommend that you check out Batman Eternal. And I know it's the first part of the series has come out in a trade thus far, um, but you can certainly pick up the issues themselves relatively cheaply. Uh, and read The Court of the Owls before you read Batman Eternal. It'll help. Yeah, that it, it it's it was very strange. It turned out that uh, that villain, that B grade villain, was actually uh, '80s comedian Bobcat Goldthwait, which <laughs> I didn't see coming. You know, um, that's right. Spoiler that's alert! Spoiler alert! He's good at spoiler alerts, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. And honestly, what I just said not only does this ruin Batman Eternal for you, it also ruins the talking horse comedy Hot to Trot. Uh, that Bobcat Goldthwait starred in somewhere around 87 or 88. So um, I've just ruined a lot of entertainment for a lot of people. So, yes, you did. Uh, Father uh, Matt, what do you have? Well, so um, my recommendation is is not a Batman title. Um, what? Although, <laughs> Get out. Although fans of, fans of Batman may know the creative team, uh, Jeff uh, Loeb and Tim Sale from their wonderful work on Batman, especially uh, Batman: The Long Halloween. Well, this is uh, this is a project they did over at Marvel Comics, and um, it's it's a collection, and it's called Yellow, Blue, and Gray, and and you can find it on uh, on Amazon in, in a nice hardcover edition. It's actually three uh, miniseries collected. The first one. Um, and my favorite one is is Daredevil Yellow. Daredevil Yellow uh, kind of retells the story of Daredevil from his early days. Many of you may know that Daredevil uh, briefly wore a yellow uniform in the in the first um, several issues of his of his series. And so Daredevil Yellow centers around that early time in in Daredevil's career as a superhero. And all the books are kind of a look at the early years of these heroes. Spider-Man Blue is the second one, and, and, and that focuses on Spider-Man's college years. And uh, the Hulk Gray is, is the third one, and that focuses on the early uh, years of the Hulk, his origin. And many of you may know that the Hulk was originally Gray in the first uh couple issues of his series but but the really interesting thing about all three of these storylines is is not only the kind of retelling of of the early years of these heroes but the focus on each uh, character's uh, love life 
And so Daredevil Yellow is is is, is told as uh, kind of a therapeutic letter that that Daredevil's alter ego Matt Murdock is writing to his first love Karen Page. And so he he tells the story about how they first met and how they fell in love, and and um, it it it's it's a lighter Daredevil story. It, it, it's kind of um, much more lighthearted than, than the Frank Miller Daredevil or, or even the, the new Netflix series. But um, in that way, it, it's sort of a refreshing new look at the character. And, and uh, Spider-Man Blue is also a love story. And this is a, is a similar kind of conceit. It's uh, uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man's alter ego, writing um, a series of letters to his his uh, his first true love, Gwen Stacy, and the Hulk Gray um, takes a similar track, and this is this is Bruce Banner talking to his friend, confidant, and psychiatrist Doc Savage, and he's talking about his the the early days uh, of his relationship with Betty Ross. So these are all th- these are very well written series. Um, the artwork is spectacular by Tim Sale. Um, they, they, each one of them has has a bit of a lighter touch without being superficial. I, I think you'll really enjoy them. And that brings us to our main conversation today, uh, which is going to revolve around uh, Daredevil and particularly around the new uh, Netflix television series about Daredevil. Father Matt, if you wouldn't mind giving the uh, the two sentence Reader's Digest version of who is Daredevil. Daredevil uh, was a, was a character created back in in '64 by Stan Lee and Bill Everett, and um, he uh, he hails from Hell's Kitchen, and that's a very important part of his character. Uh, and he was blinded in, in a, a, an accident as a as a young boy, saving a man from from an oncoming truck. But in the process, he was he was blinded by a radioactive isotope, and it took away his sight, but it it heightened uh, dramatically all his other senses. Well, uh, it's probably worth mentioning uh, his his senses are heightened by uh, the accident, and he also gets this other sense that is sometimes described as a radar sense, uh, mm-hmm. in which he's able to have a a a kind of a 360 sense of where things are uh, around him, which is yeah. um, actually portrayed in a really interesting way in the show um, where, where he talks about sort of seeing fire everywhere. Um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting part of the show. Yeah. But let's talk about the show a little bit. Um, what what did you guys? What's what are your first impressions? Well, first of all, let's let's say that we we've all been at different we're at different places in how much we viewed. Uh-huh. Um, yes. I have binge watched, and as of this morning, I have completed all thirteen episodes. Um, wow. So I get a gold <laughs> star. Uh, how, how far in are you guys? I've only watched two episodes thus far. Okay. And and I'm uh, I've watched up to episode five. Okay, well, based on where where you are thus far, what what do you guys think? Um, since all three of us uh, have 
longtime love for this character and, and read the comics uh, going back a long way. Uh, what what did you guys think? I have to say it's very, very well done. The two episodes that I've seen thus far have been very well done. Um, I think they did a fantastic job of capturing the tenor of Daredevil, particularly during the Brian Michael Bendis, Alex Maleev period, which was about 10, 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, the comics at that time were painted rather than simply drawn. And they the backgrounds were exceedingly dark and there were little pops of red from his costume, but, you know, also from the environment around him. And that was one of the things that really struck me in seeing this show is that they've managed to capture that dark feel with the background. There's not a lot of color happening. Um, I thought that it was certainly brutal. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of violence to it. I don't think I could watch more than two episodes at one time. <laughs> um, by the time I finished episode two, I needed a little bit of a break, but, uh, but I think it was true to the character and what I've seen and really captures Matt Murdock in, in a much better way than the Ben Affleck movie did. Father, Father Matt, how about you? What's your assessment so far? Oh, I, I, I am, I'm loving this show. It, it may be one of my favorite film adaptions of, of a comic book. Uh, to date, uh, it's certainly different than than a lot of the other um, Marvel uh, film adaptions. It has more in common with The Wire <laughs> on HBO or True Detective or Breaking yeah. Bad than yeah. than it does with um, Thor or or Iron Man. Al- although they do maintain that connection, and that's kind of cool. You you get little. Um, references to what's going on in the other movies mm-hmm. like uh it, right in the first episode they talk about you know half the city being destroyed i mean it, and i i think that was a reference to the avengers it was yeah and yeah yeah so so it, it's still in the same universe but this is this is a much more like on the level kind of you know street level story and uh which is true to the comic book I love the the way the the actors portray the portray the characters. Um, uh, Charlie Cox is is phenomenal as, as Matt Murdock. The the actor who plays Foggy Nelson is just spot on. Oh, who who's the actor that plays the Kingpin? Uh, anyone know his name? Uh, uh, yeah, I knew it. No, I yeah. can't remember it. The Kingpin is just. Uh, it, it, it's just fantastic the way they do it. He he is a complex villain. He he's dark, he's brooding, but there's also just this deep sadness and insecurity to his character, which is really compelling. It doesn't feel like a superhero show, you know. Like if you try to compare this to something like the the DC shows that are on now, like Arrow or um, the Flash. Um, or something like that. I mean, Arrow is pretty dark, uh, and yet, yeah. in terms of depth, I don't think they're not even really in the same ballpark. Even the way it's filmed, that you know, you have the the deep shadows and the um, yeah. the the the, uh, the neon light and stuff like that. All all kind of has a very noir feel to it. Um, the city is a big character in Daredevil. 
And that's been one of the that that's been one of the things that was really good about the comic series over the last. I haven't. Let me say first of all, I haven't read the Mark Wade Daredevil yet. I have that on deck, but the uh, the Daredevil for the past decade or more has had that sort of real gritty, dark feel to it. And um, there have been issues where it's dealt almost strictly with Matt Murdock. Daredevil, the Mm -hmm. character himself, has barely made an appearance. And that was one of the things that struck me about the show is that they've kept that same kind of feel where even though the character of Daredevil himself, granted the second issue he was, or second episode, he was there quite a bit. But the first episode... He made some appearances, but you got a lot of Matt Murdock, and that uh-huh. that was really good. I'm also really happy with the friendship uh, and how they work on that between Foggy and, and Matt Murdock. I, I actually had trouble thinking of another friendship like this in comics um, between two characters, one of whom is, you know, the super-powered guy, one of whom is not, and yet the friendship is on an almost equal basis. Mm. Um, you know, um, Foggy Nelson is as much a part of, of the Daredevil world as, as almost as much as Matt Murdock is. I mean, he's, he's just yeah. such an essential character. Um, and I think that's really important that they, that they bring that out. He's kind of like an Alfred to to Batman, except not quite the not quite the same in the sense that there's a servant master relationship, but there's more of a best friendship. But I think he's yeah. got that same kind of integral relationship that he's necessary to Daredevil's world in the way that Alfred is necessary to Batman's world. Well, let, let's turn to um, some of the Christian elements uh, that we have in here because the Catholicism of Matt Murdock has always been something in the, in the comic that has been essential to it. Now there've been times when it's faded more into the background and times when, when certain people bring it, um, certain creators have brought it more to the forefront, uh, but it is important. Uh, and, uh, it's important in the series. Uh, by the way, this is just as an aside. So, he makes a number of trips to this Catholic church throughout the, the series to visit with this priest. And it was only in one of the last couple of, of um, episodes that I realized that he is actually in an Episcopal church. The church that they are using ah, to film this is an really? Episcopal church. And here's how I know. Because they have Books of Common Prayer and the hymnal 1982 right there in the pews in the camera shots. <laughs> oh, so, wow. <laughs> uh, there oh. we are. So Matt Murdock, secret Episcopalian. This is what we're learning from this. But uh, I, I, <laughs> all of this also is to say, you know, so we are Episcopal priests. We're not Roman Catholic priests. Um, and so that's going to be the angle that we, that we come from. And yet... Um, being part of a church that is a historical church that has the historical liturgy, you know, we have enough in common, um, particularly with the kind of folk and cultural Catholicism that I think we can probably uh, talk at least uh, with some degree of um, confidence about, uh, um, you know, some of these things. Or, or at least I will, and, and you guys can... Uh, 
chastise me and throw things at me if you like. Um, well, Father Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong. You were raised a Roman Catholic. I was raised a Roman Catholic, although interestingly enough with that, you know, I was raised in a very sort of um, progressive Roman Catholic uh, environment that was almost liberal Protestant in the way it worked out. It was, it was, I grew up in a interfaith center where lots of different groups met. Uh, it was church in a box every week. There was no stained glass. There were no pews. There were chairs. Um, there was no statues, um, no kneeling, you know, no confessionals. So actually most of the really heavy Catholic stuff in, in terms of imagery and symbols and even rituals that I've imbibed has been since I've become uh, an Anglican. Uh, so um, there we this are. This explains it all now. <laughs> yeah. Well, although I wasn't, I wasn't raised uh, Roman Catholic myself. My my dad's family are very, uh, very committed uh, Roman Catholics, and and I grew up. And in a neighborhood, and Father Jonathan, you're now serving around that neighborhood, which is extremely, extremely Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, um, part, parts of Upper Darby, which is outside of Philadelphia, they're very Irish Catholic kind of um, neighborhood. So, so Daredevil always fit right into that kind of world. I mean, he's you know he's not from Philadelphia, he's not from Upper Darby, obviously, but he he has sort of this working class Irish Catholic background that I that I sort of you know I, I grew up with people like that, you know, for people uh, that I grew up with who who may not even be practicing Catholics anymore, it's still that identity is so deeply ingrained that uh, it can't help but affect the person that they are. So, you know, even if they don't go to church, uh, the church that they don't go to is the Roman Catholic Church. I think that's very much a part of who Matt Murdock is. Maybe uh, his his practice of Catholicism has has been spotty at times. In in the series, you you definitely don't get the impression that um, Matt Murdock is especially chaste. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> but um, he still kind of feels the need to seek spiritual direction and to go for a confession. One of the things that first attracted me to Daredevil, I actually got introduced to Daredevil by owning the um, Marvel Secret Wars action figure of Daredevil. Oh, in yeah, 19, me too. 1985, they put one out, and uh, and I got that character, and I, I kind of. I liked the look of him, and I had a neighbor down the street from where I grew up who had a collection of comic books who um, his son, who I was friends with, gave me, just started giving me the comic books, said his dad didn't want them anymore, here I could have them. And uh, by the way, I came away with some massively valuable comics from that collection, including (laughs) the drug issues, 98 and 99 of Amazing Spider-Man, the uh, wow. Batman where Ra's al Ghul first appears. But at any rate, I got a Daredevil comic in that mix, and it had a, a Spider-Man was in the comic, which is part of the reason why I grabbed it. And, um, and so I got introduced a little bit to Daredevil that way. But at the time, Frank Miller was writing Daredevil. This was like 1986. And, uh, and I went into a 7-Eleven, and one of the issues of Daredevil that was there 
was a cover that featured a Roman Catholic nun. I saw that cover and it intrigued me that a superhero had um, some Christian elements to him, having grown up in the Episcopal Church and been active in a in a higher Episcopal Church, uh, liturgically higher Episcopal Church, um, which you know had some similarities to Roman Catholicism. That that intrigued me a lot, and and I always still find that element of Daredevil's character to be very interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the confession, since that's something that all of us saw. Um, and uh, this, this comes up again as it goes. Um, but uh, what did you all think of um, the confession that kind of leads off the series? I thought that it sounded a lot like your confession of eating Oreos a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it did, didn't it? Yeah, he was confessing to something he hadn't yet done, which um, is sort of problematic on a, on a number of levels. Yes. There's these tensions in Matt Murdock, right? I mean, so he's a lawyer, <laughs> but he's also a vigilante. He's working outside of the law, um, as a vigilante, and then as uh, at night, and then in the daytime, he's committed to um, to upholding the law and kind of you know working within the boundaries of the law. And the other tension, of course, comes from his drive for for vengeance. In some respects, there's his commitment to justice, which which can't be doubted. Um, but he's also acting out. He's he's acting out of of a rage over over the 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 murder of his father and and so there's this tension between his his quest for vengeance as a vigilante and his his kind of a Catholic upbringing which is well you know turn the other cheek forgive those who wrong you I think he is he's deeply conflicted about his crime fighting career. He tells one criminal that he does this because he enjoys it. And the nurse, Claire, you know, calls him on that. And she says, you, you told that man you do this because you enjoy it. I don't believe you. And I, I think part of Matt Murdock is sort of part of him does enjoy it. And part of him is doing it out of this sense of duty, you know, which is another element in his Catholicism. You know, this, you know, he feels this responsibility i think right off the bat they sort of establish those tensions and conflicts within within Murdoch. i i think it was just a, a, the perfect way to kind of start the series out yeah i agree yeah i mean i i think as a as a device for storytelling i understand why they kind of did it that way um and it it is a recurring device. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you see a lot of the use of confession in this way in, um, in various uh, films and, and uh, television shows um, where basically confession becomes an, a vehicle for exposition, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is an opportunity for me to say a bunch of stuff that... <laughs> Um, that gets this information out there and it doesn't make it look like I'm just saying this so that you have this information. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, th there are a couple of things that 
that the show gets kind of wrong about confession that I think are worth pointing out. Um, mm -hmm. Bearing in mind, obviously, that, um, you know, now in our tradition as, as Anglicans, as Episcopalians, we have confession. Uh, our, our priests hear confessions. We don't look at it exactly the same way as Roman Catholics, but there's a lot of similarity. Um, and um, there are a couple of things that, that sort of struck me. Uh, one is that this priest, every time he goes back to them in, the, in this show, the priest basically says, uh, well, hey, you know, all of this is uh, confidential, everything you tell me, so you can tell me anything. <laughs> and uh, I think it's worth pointing out to people that, um, you know, not every word that you say to a priest is a confession, um, that there actually is a uh, liturgical form to it. So not every, not every conversation is under the seal. Um, but that, sure. being, that being said... Um, the other problem with this actually goes the other way, which is that he's quick to continuously remind Matt that because of the seal of confession, he is not going to bring up any of this stuff that Matt has told him to anybody else. The problem is the priest keeps bringing up the stuff with him. Yes, um, I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is part of the theology of confession is that the priest is really there to be, um, you know, you stand in the place of the church to a certain extent, but you're also standing in the place of God to, um, to hear those words and hold somebody accountable, but also ultimately to offer them grace, to offer them forgiveness, to be able to right. speak the words of Jesus that bring forgiveness to somebody. And part of how that is able to be maintained in a relationship is that one of the things that's enjoined upon us as priests with a confession is if if somebody's made a confession to us we are not allowed to bring that up with anybody including the person who made the confession now they could come back right, and yeah. make another confession and we can right. we can have a conversation about it within the bounds of confession itself but i can't just like walk up to somebody in the middle of church or in the middle of the street or something and say hey how are things going you know how's that right how, how's that th stealing working out for you you know <laughs> right. it's it's once the once the absolution has been pronounced it is gone the sin is gone and um you know somebody comes in and confesses to me on a monday that they are uh, constantly stealing and embezzling funds, but they don't want to ever do it again. And I absolve them of that. And then they come in on Tuesday and say to, um, to the vestry meeting, uh, I'd like to run for church treasurer. I cannot jump up at that point and say, oh, hey, I have a reason why you shouldn't do that. And not only yeah. can I not do that with the group, but I can't pull him aside and say, hey, I've got a reason why you shouldn't do that. Once it's gone, it's gone because once the sin is absolved in the eyes of God, it is gone. It is right. it is no longer there. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it, it's worth pointing out. I mean, and, and I don't think this this affects affects your point very much. The, the priest is still um, inappropriately sort of returning to the subject with with Matt Murdock, but Matt Murdock doesn't get absolution. No. That's no, I, and, and, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's um, it's part of the problem. He's he's saying, well, like you can't confess to something 
and then go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> Right, right. Um, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> right. um, and, and so this is this is the problem. Daredevil, it, 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 he he has the guilt, but he's not he's not ready to to um, to really repent in the full sense, which would mean um, you know an amendment of life. Right. Um, he he kind of he's looking for permission from this priest right. to do what he's about to do. I, I yeah. you know you can see because some of the conflict for him is that he is Catholic enough that he knows that he ought to go to confession, and he wants to let go of his sin, but at the same time he wants to be able to kind of indulge in it, and mm -hmm. it made me think about how people tend to think of confession because a lot of people really don't like the idea of confession. Um, most American Catholics, I think, at this point don't go to confession. Uh, most Episcopalians don't even realize they can go to confession. Um, right. And uh, generally, when you talk to people about the idea of confession and absolution, they find it to be one of the scariest parts of the, of the Christian religion because to them, it sounds almost voyeuristic. It sounds like you're going to walk into this place and you're going to say all of these terrible things uh, that you've done. And this person uh, is going to sit there and judge you for these terrible things uh, and think, you know, what an awful person you are. Uh, when in fact, confession and absolution is actually one of the most wonderful things that we have. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy. Um, and, you know, I mean, exercise isn't easy, you know, like <laughs> various things are not easy. And yet the purpose of it is not for the priest to sit and judge. I mean, I, you know, I admire people who come to see me for confession because mm -hmm. I, I, because I make my own confession and I know how hard that is. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the purpose is really to be able to trust in God enough to be able to leave that there and allow God to take it and take that burden off of our shoulders. Um, which is what that, absolution does it lifts that burden off of our shoulders and places it onto the cross um and uh you know you you walk away from that experience lighter than when you walked in that that's really the purpose of it um yeah. and you know matt murdoch can't do that because he's walking in not ready to actually let it go and let it sit at the foot of the cross he's still trying to carry it around at the same time mm. Yeah, I, I, but it's it's obviously um, Matt, that that Matt Murdock experiences a comfort in, in going to confession. It seems that to me that one of the things that that's happening in the television series, and I think this is sometimes the way that people often view confession, is more as a therapeutic session, um, um, a psychoanalysis hmm. rather than an actual, um, you know, handing over of sin and receiving the absolution. Um, I think in the few instances I've had where people have come wanting to confess and we've not had the opportunity or done it within a liturgical context, it's often been dealt with that way on their part, that they just want, you know, to dump their baggage and then move on as though you just are the psychoanalyst sitting there, you know, receiving that. And that that's what strikes me about the way that whole scene went down in the television show. 
He does seem but, like he's got, like he knows he's got something he's carrying that he needs to get rid of. But you're right. He spends a lot of time building up to that with like the story of this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's no doubt that he's got something that he wants to get out. He knows he needs forgiveness. Um, there is a part of him that is very much a broken sinner. But you see the bound will at work there, too, that he's bound and determined to do things his way, mm -hmm. even in the midst of the law working upon him and accusing him. Mm. And that's the tension of all of us sinners in a real way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, actually, you know, so that that's that connects nicely with one other thing I wanted to bring up. Now, neither of you guys have gotten this far. But there is this scene a little further into the series where um, Matt, in one of these meetings he has with the, uh, with the priest, they sit down and have lattes together in the basement of the church, um, yeah. which is kind of funny. Uh, but uh, Matt is struggling with understanding who Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, who he is, and, and asks the priest about the devil. And whether he whether or not he believes in the devil, and the priest's answer to this is really interesting. Um, and uh, so, spoiler alert: I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> it's uh, I'm not spoiling any plot points. Um, sure, sure. But uh, but basically, what the priest says is that he used to not believe in the devil. He says, you know, when I was in seminary, I thought I was smarter than all of this stuff. And uh, I, I had my theories about it. And he even talks about how Satan just means advocate and all this kind of stuff. And he says, so I didn't, I thought it was just, you know, I didn't buy it. But then he tells this story about his experience of um, being part of a mission, I think in Africa or somewhere, um, where he he saw the influence of the devil at work, yeah. and he saw the reality of that that level of evil at work, and was forced to basically conclude that he had been wrong that there that there is a devil, which I think is really interesting and actually really interesting for a TV show like that to um, to say something like that, but. Wow. Yeah. But, but what's extraordinary to me in thinking back over it is so, you know, the natural thought then on Murdoch's part is how do I combat this? And um, I'm not so sure. We'll have to see. After you guys see this, maybe you'll think of it differently than I did. I'm not so sure there was an answer to that question. <laughs> and I think that this points to what I think is sometimes the problem with the way that that the um catholicism of daredevil is portrayed um and of and of a lot of other characters which is that there is this rock solid kind of morality that comes out of his uh, experience of being a catholic that he's struggling with but there is there's so little room for grace you know, yeah. and, uh, and to me, that's just very sad, you know, that you would have this, this really heavy struggle for justice, this really heavy struggle for what's right and what's wrong. And yet there's no room in there for, for that to get, um, to get lifted. You're almost sort of left with it, you know? Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, this is that's certainly a topic I think we could explore with a lot of comic book characters. Yeah. Who are driven by Spider-Man in particular, who are driven um, by this sort of um, never-ending sense of guilt. Um, mm. I, I mean, we could we we could explore that in, in other episodes. I think that's a great um, a great topic to discuss sometimes. But I, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you guys: do, Have you noticed a pattern with uh, all the most religious characters in comic books look like a devil? Have you noticed? <laughs> that? No, I haven't. So, okay, so there's Daredevil, who's really Catholic, right? Right. Um, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, yeah. Night, oh, yeah. Nightcrawler uh, is, is, is I, I think he's Orthodox, right? Uh, no, uh, no, no, no. He's uh, he's German. He's he's also Catholic. Oh, he's also Catholic. Yeah. Um, and, and he looks like a devil. And, yeah. and 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 Hellboy is in fact, although he is apparently the son of Satan, he <laughs> is also a Catholic and carries a rosary with him. <laughs> I, I, what's the deal there? I think, it, um, you know, if you look like a devil, you really have to, it, it really makes you seek the Lord. I what, what do the Protestant heroes look like? Who are the Protestant heroes? <laughs> that's, that's probably Captain a better America question. Captain America is clearly a Protestant. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that from the movie when he tells, uh, from the Avengers movie where he tells he says there's only one god and he doesn't dress like that <laughs> but he's also he's often he's also often shown at worship in the, in the comics it's usually a protestant church in fact oh it's actually episcopalian you know he yeah he, um, yeah he goes to an episcopal church in one comic ah uh, the one yeah. true american faith yes yeah. that's right <laughs> <laughs> This is this is a really great conversation. I, I'm excited about where this series is going to go. I, you know, um, even though having watched 13 episodes in such a short amount of time of something that that was that violent and depressing kind of makes me <laughs> a little <laughs> on edge. Uh, it, it, it was nevertheless um, a really good run. I I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about Daredevil some more in the future because he's he's a, he's a fantastic character. But right now, instead, we're gonna do a little thing that we call this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Huh? This 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 or that. Let's see. Who should we start with here? Who should we start with? Let's start with uh, Father Matt. Okay. Uh, since we've been talking about Daredevil, Evil Knievel or Super Dave Osborne? Uh, See what I did there? <laughs> evil Knievel. Okay. Oh, that's blasphemy. <laughs> uh, well, I don't feel very strongly either way. Okay. You're a big Super Dave fan, are you, uh? I, I love Super Dave. I love uh, what's his name, the guy who plays him. He he was a fantastic character on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, I think by far his best performance is on Arrested Development. Oh uh, yes, do you remember he was that? great on as that the as, well. as the surrogate for uh, for the father while he's uh, on house arrest. Right, right. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> That's good stuff. 
Okay. Well, Father Kyle, let's see if you feel strongly about this one. Pink or chartreuse? <laughs> well, I don't feel that strongly about it. I guess I would say chartreuse. Chartreuse. Why, Father Kyle? Why? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, now, you and I have a mutual friend who would take you to task on that. Oh, I know, I know. Our, our friend, Pastor Rob Kieslowski, who's a Lutheran pastor who's been fighting the good fight for the color pink because uh, a century, apparently a century or, or, or more ago, uh, you know how we associate pink with, with girls and blue with boys? A century or more ago, that was the opposite. Uh, and so he, really? he, is, really? he is always on a quest to reclaim pink as a manly color. He and I have had that conversation. Yeah, but I didn't know about it being a being the opposite with pink and blue. Well, I mean, it's that. not like either one of them have inherently masculine or feminine qualities, right? They're just colors. Sure. So um, there, there we are. Yeah. I've been known to uh, wear pink on, on, on in Lent and Advent. There, that's <laughs> true. Me too. Me too. I've got myself a Pepto Bismol chasuble. So there we are. All right, Father Matt, are you ready? Yes. Uh, this this next one is Paul Reiser themed. Uh, okay. My two dads or Mad About You. Oh, uh, Mad About You. Really? Okay. Because uh, the actress, the the actress uh, is also named Helen, and ah. that's my that's my daughter's name. So ah. that's the logic ah. behind that. One. I, okay, right. I can I can see that. I can see that. What the heck happened to Paul Reiser? He's just like fallen off the planet, hasn't he? Yeah, he really has. That's because that show ended so poorly, he couldn't show his face again afterwards. <laughs> I, I heard that he's going to make an appearance in Daredevil as Stiltman. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, Paul, if you're listening, write in. We'd love to have you on the show. So, well, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Father Kyle. Yes. This one pertains to the celebration of Holy Communion. Wafers or real bread? Well, I have to say wafers because that's what I use. Um, but I actually don't mind using real bread. Uh, I, there have been a few times in my history of growing up in the church that I've had real bread used. Um, but, yeah, I guess I'll just say wafers because that's currently what I have. Yeah. Creates a lot of crumbs, though. That's the problem with, with real bread. It does indeed but do that, yes. <laughs> another priest said to me once, which I thought was, was wise, um, you know, with the, with the kind of cardboard wafers that we, that we generally use, uh, he said, I have no problem believing that when consecrated, this is the body of Christ. I have a lot of trouble believing that it's bread. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that before. Well. <laughs> so, anyway. Father Matt, over to you. Uh, Foggy Nelson or Jimmy Olsen? Oh, Foggy Nelson. Yeah, that is the correct answer. <laughs> Father Kyle, I have a feeling I know how you're going to answer this, but uh, basketball or football? Football. Yeah. I like basketball, don't get me wrong. I like basketball, but I'm much more of a football fan. I'm a huge Miami Dolphins fan. and Miami I, uh, Dol I Why are you a Miami Dolphins football. fan? You grew up in Jersey. I'm a Dolphins 
Yeah, I'm a Dolphins fan because when I was growing up, Dan Marino was such a great quarterback, and I had cousins who were into Dan Marino and into the Dolphins who who influenced me, and then I got into them through that, and I just have stuck with them ever since. I plus I've sort of always had a love for the South and for warmer climates, so somehow yeah. all that factored together. Okay. That's why you moved to Virginia. I understand. That's why that. I moved to Virginia. I'm inching my way south further and further <laughs> south. There we go. Father Matt, wine or beer? Beer. Okay. Beer. Yeah. But what kind? I, well, uh I, I'm not too particular. <laughs> okay. But uh um yeah, I'm just I'm 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 not uh, classy enough to be a wine guy. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell that time we had the Trinity party at uh in, in Pennsylvania, you seemed out of sorts. <laughs> just <joking>. Yeah. <laughs> you know as as it, it's been, it's been a trial being an Episcopalian. I was going to say, as as an as Episcopalians, <laughs> the correct answer to that question is sherry by the fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. There's there's a um a TV show, uh, uh, the Grantchester Mysteries, about an Anglican priest who solves murders, and um, oh yeah, it's a good show. Um, he's his theology's god awful, but uh, it's a good show. <laughs> I heard his sermons are really bad. I I, I, I want to see it. I haven't seen it. But they they offer him whenever he goes over to someone's house, they offer him a drink. And one house he goes to, they instantly pour him a sherry. And so that is what a what a parson drinks, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Father Kyle. Today, um, while we're recording this, is actually uh, the 150th anniversary of the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Okay. So uh, the one I'm going to offer to you is John Calvin or John Wilkes Booth? Oh, well, John Calvin. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, John Calvin was enough. Uh, he's enough trouble for me, but uh, at least he didn't assassinate the president. That's 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 probably the right answer. I think you're you're probably safe there. Yes. I like certain things about Calvin. For those of you listening, I like certain things about Calvin. I speak bad of him in many respects, but um, there are certain things I like about him. Like the fact that he never assassinated a sitting U.S. president? That's right. Although he did, did uh, who was it that he had burned in the fire? Didn't Calvin give approval to... Servitus. Servitus, that's right. Yeah, and he was be, I think he was beheaded, wasn't he? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, Father Matt, an equally difficult choice for you, Cindy Lauper or Madonna? Oh, um, Cindy Lauper. Because yeah. you just want to have fun. Uh, always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not sure about that one, but yeah, probably Cindy Lauper. She hasn't had quite the expansive career that Madonna has, but um, I've heard I've heard her do some performances where she really has a, a great blues edge to her, you know. And I'm not super familiar with either of their their work, but yeah. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. And finally, Father Kyle, cornbread 
or corn fritters? Corn bread, I would probably say. Although I don't know what how much difference there is between the two ultimately. Although when you have a very good cornbread and somebody doesn't knows how to not dry it out, it, it can be pretty great. Mm. Uh, Father Kyle, you live in the South now. I think that uh, somebody ought to help you with the whole cornbread, corn fritters uh, experience. You know. Well, yes, I've had both of them before. I mean, aside, but uh, I mean, essentially, right? A corn fritter is kind of like a hush puppy, right? Yeah. Um, and Isn't I, a hush puppy a shoe? Well, yes, they are, but they're also. <laughs> and I love hush puppies, so I guess. Isn't a hush had, puppy a quiet dog? Well, it is that, too. But that aren't they? That's what I've grown up having in the South, and uh, you grew up poor since you were eating shoes. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I had Philly of soul and, and, and quiet dogs. He was also eating said. quiet dogs. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you would you say John Calvin or cornbread? <laughs> I might have to have cornbread over John Calvin. <laughs> No, I imagine John Calvin would be kind of tough. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think he might be. He might be a little chewy. I think you're you're uh, operating as an agent of Satan to get me into trouble with my reformed folks here. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, the correct answer is depends on how it's prepared. That's the answer. Okay, thank you. It's, it's all really the doing of Bobcat Goldthwaite. He's yes. behind the whole thing. He's really the trouble. He really is. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our show this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening. I hope that everybody uh, is having a wonderful Easter season. Uh, Please go over and check out our website at GodInComics.com. You can also take a look at our iTunes page. We would love it if you gave us a rating and a review. That helps other people to find the show. Father Paul Wheatley created our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now. And until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. And I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see you next time.